Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of James. The book of James. For those of you who've been with us for a while, you're saying, hold on a second, we've been in the book of Ephesians. And yes, we have, but this morning we're going to do something a little different, a little special. Uh, it fits right in with what we've been doing. Uh, matter of fact, the lessons that we've learned through the book of Ephesians, as well as uh, on our Wednesday night study in the book of Matthew, fit right in with where we're going to be today. So it's kind of unique that this should happen. I'll tell you this, if you ever come to me with something personally you want to talk to me about, I will not use it from the pulpit to preach on unless I first ask your permission and, and, and get the okay to do what we've talked about or asked about. And this particular morning, there'll be some references to someone in our midst. And he absolutely knows that this is going to be done. This is not catching him by surprise any whatsoever. But uh, there's particular instruction in the book of James that I find very unique and interesting. And to be honest with you, this is the first time that I have witnessed it uh, used in this particular manner, which is proper and is the proper way to do this. I've seen it uh, used uh, improperly sometimes, and we'll talk about that this morning. But if you found the book of James in the New Testament towards the middle to back half, if you would stand with me and let's turn to chapter 5 there in the book of James. And we're going to look over in the 13th verse, and we're going to read very rapidly, cover what we can this morning, and then we're going to worship God in a special way together. So starting in the 13th verse of the 5th chapter of the book of James, it reads like this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You see, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Father, this morning I have read what is one of the most difficult passages in your New Testament to grasp and to understand. Let each of us set our preconceived ideas to the side and listen to the still small voice of your Holy Spirit as he fellowships among us this morning. You take this word. You speak to our hearts for what a difference it will make for us personally and as a church. May you be honored this morning. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. If 
you've been around me very much, you realize I like to keep everything in context. That's why I find it important that you exegete whenever you preach, that you preach starting at the beginning of a book and you preach word by word, line by line, verse by verse, so that it's all put in the context. And there's no chance to reach into a particular scripture and pull it out and use it for your own needs because by placing it in the context of the word, you understand what God truly meant. Well, this morning we're going to step away from that and we're going to look at one piece out of the book of James. But I'm going to give you a run-up to it so that you know what's going on in the entire book of James so that you can put this into context. I'm going to give you a run-up in a minute and a half or less of the first four and a half chapters of the book of James. So if you want to take a note, take it very quickly. If you don't have time to write it, please come get with me afterwards. You can copy mine. The context of the book of James, in case you're not aware, James is writing to Jewish believers. He's writing to the Jewish believers. Those Jewish believers, you can look back in Acts chapter 8. And you can find out in Acts chapter 8 that they were scattered abroad. They had to flee Palestine. Or Palestine. The reason they had to flee Palestine was because of this guy named Saul. If you remember in the 7th chapter of the book of Acts is where we see Stephen, Stephen being stoned to death. And those that stoned Stephen to death laid their feet, or their clothes, their cloaks at the feet of a man named Saul. For Saul was persecuting the church. And it tells you very, very uh, plainly in the very first part of chapter 8 that those Jews had to flee Palestine because of this persecution that they were under. So that's this group that James is actually writing to, those that, that were scattered. How do we know that? The very first chapter there of the book of James, he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. That scattering is coming directly out of that uh, persecution of the church in Acts 8. So that's the group he's writing to. And you see, they faced particular trials and persecutions. If I had read a little further there in the first chapter, in, in uh, the second verse, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So see what he's saying to this group of Jewish believers he's writing to. He's saying, I know you've been persecuted. I know you've been run out of your homeland. I know you have trials. I know you have difficulties in your life. He says, just count every bit of it joy. And isn't that what we do? Every time something comes our way, don't we say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Riding down the road, the tire goes flat. You go, thank you, Jesus. The tire went flat. That's great. It's exactly what we do, isn't it? <laughs> no. No, we generally don't. But he's telling them, I know you're persecuted. He goes from there to chapter 1, and he, he talks about those trials and growing in those trials there in verse 2. He moves on over uh, towards verse 12, and he says, above all else there in verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He's saying, through the trials, continue to love God. Continue to hold firm to him. But he moves from there and he goes uh, over to uh, like verse uh, 22 there where he gets over into verse 22. And he warns them as he's saying, you hold on to those trials, hold on to God. But he says in verse 22 of chapter 1, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Else you're deceiving yourself. So see this pattern he's starting to walk them through? He starts off talking about the trials. He's saying love God and hold firm to him. But don't just hear what he says. You be doers. He moves from there over to the second chapter. In the second chapter, he starts off it. The very first part there, he says, and don't show favoritism. He says, don't be a church 
that when a man shows up nicely dressed, carrying gold watches and wearing the best of clothes, don't give him the best seat in the place. For God loves everyone equal. He says, don't show spiritual favoritism. That's what he's talking about in the very first part. He moves from there to verse 17 of that particular chapter, of the second chapter there, and he says, Thus also faith by itself, it does not have works. If it does not have works, it is dead. That's a verse that we say all the time and say, Faith without works is dead. So he moves them again through a situation and then reminds them that they must be a doer of what he's talking about. He says, yes, you got trials. Yes, you have folks that show favoritism. Yes, you have struggles in your life. Hold fast to God and be a doer. You're starting to see a pattern. He moves on into chapter 3 and he starts with that section in chapter 3 that we all like to avoid It's that section of James that tells us that our entire body is controlled by what? Our tongue. He's saying just like a great ship that is blown about is controlled by a small rudder, so is the direction of your life by those things that come forth from your mouth. For the Bible tells us in other places that which comes out of your mouth starts in your heart. And he warns against that and he says, you know, measure what you're going to say. Stop and think about what you're about to say and do. He moves from there over to the 17th verse, or over to starting in 13, really. He says, and to do that, what should you do? You should seek heavenly wisdom, not earthly wisdom. What makes sense to you mentally as a human being that doesn't make sense from the Bible, you should throw the human thought process out and go with what the Word says. Make what comes from your mouth be godly by putting your head in the Word, not in the world, is what he says. He moves from there into chapter 4, and he says something that strikes to the heart of many Christians when he starts off in the very first part of chapter 4, where he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? He says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? He goes from there saying, the things that happen to you a lot of times is caused by what you choose to do in your life. You desire to fulfill the lust of the flesh and then wonder why God's not blessing you. I'll tell you why. Because you're not holding firm to God. You're holding firm to the world. Those two things are like oil and water. You must hold firm to God to receive those blessings. And he's saying there in that very first part of of chapter 4, he's saying be humble. Be humble told you many times what's missing in our church today is our ability to be humble before God and confess our sins openly to him and admit that we are sinners and fall on our face before him with tears in our eyes because of those things that we have done that are against him. We're too prideful. We're too proud to let anybody see us cry. We're too proud to let anybody else know that we've sinned. It doesn't matter what I know about you. It matters what God knows about you. And there's not a sin that you commit that God doesn't see. So it's futile. It's foolish to stand in the pew and think it makes a difference that you're not going to come down because you don't want anybody to think bad of you when God knows what you've done. What does God really want you to do? He wants you to forget about what everybody else thinks. Humble yourself before him. Repent and turn from your sin. That's what God wants. 
And he starts off chapter 4 and he says, be humble, be humble. He goes on to emphasize that starting in verse 7 when he says, be humble because God lifts up those humble. He tells us that towards the end of that in verse 10 there. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You want to get out of the muck and mire of your life? Humble yourself before God. He promises that if you'll be humble and honest before him, he'll lift you up. The backside of that coin, be prideful, get your waiters out. You're going to be in the muck a little while longer. He goes on to say in verse 4 that when a brother comes humbly, when a brother comes humbly and falls on his face before the Lord, what are the rest of you not to do? He tells us starting in verse 11 through 12 there. He says, do not speak evil, one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. He goes on to tell us the only person who is a judge, a finality, a person who sends a person to a place because of the sins committed is the lawgiver. The lawgiver is God. Does this mean that you don't judge another person's walk by their actions? Absolutely not. Because to do that, you've got to rip a multitude of pages out of your Bible. It says, the fruit of your tree will tell me how your walk with God is going. I can judge your spiritual walk by the fruit that hangs on your tree. What I cannot do is judge you to hell for the what you choose. That's God's doing. I also cannot judge you for heaven or to heaven for being a good person. That also is God's doing. What he's saying here is, don't judge. Don't look at a person who comes down the aisle and falls on their face and weeps. Don't look at them and say, I wonder what awful thing they've done. No, get out of your pew and come pray with them. Because to stand in the pew and wonder what they've done places judgment upon you. You want to be judged? Wonder about what somebody told the pastor down front on Sunday morning. Wonder how come a person comes to that altar and prays week after week after week. Stand in your pew and wonder about it and you'll be the one that's judged. He's saying, don't judge. Don't just. He also goes on to say, starting in verse 13, don't boast about tomorrow. For just assuredly as you can't tell where a person's life is going to end, whether it be heaven or hell, except by judging the fruit on their tree, you also don't know that you're going to wake up in the morning to have another day on this earth. So when God calls you to do something, don't say, I'll get that taken care of tomorrow. Because you're boasting of something you have no control over whatsoever. He's saying, don't boast of tomorrow. Don't say that I have another day. Don't say that I'll put that off to tomorrow. If God places on your heart to do something, you do it and you do it right now. He does not promise us another minute. But then he moves into chapter 5. And chapter 5 is just, to me, just one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. One of the most difficult to understand. But he starts off in, verse, in chapter 5, there at the very beginning, in the first few verses from like 1 to 3. Well, actually on down through the very first part. And he talks about the rich who are oppressing the poor and judging them. He's talking about those who feel like they have better standards, better things in their life. I'm a deacon. I'm a Sunday school teacher. I know better than you know. Look what God's given me. I'm, I'm rich in the spirit. He's saying the rich oppressors will be judged. That's what he's saying in that very first section. He's saying because of the things that you choose to do with what God's given you, you'll stand before the Almighty one day and answer for it. He's saying be careful what you ask for. Be careful to ask to be in a leadership position. Be careful to ask to be a Sunday school teacher because you're held at a different standard because of that richness in your life. He moves from there to something that speaks very 
uh, heartily to me and very straightforward in verse 7 of chapter 5. And starting there down for a few verses down to actually through 12. He says, be patient. Be patient. How many of you have a difficult time with being patient? Anybody? <laughs> yes. I want it. I want it now. I don't want it yesterday. I don't want to see it done a month from now. We come up with the idea. Let's do it. I have something I want to accomplish. Let's do it now. Patience. What does patience give us? Patience gives us a heart to know what God's doing. Because patience in our life causes us to solely depend upon God, both in our waiting and in our working. Patience is a humbling thing. Are you seeing a theme for the book of James by any chance? Are you seeing a theme? This theme of understanding what God's done for you, understanding there's going to be trials and tribulations in your life. God never promises to take those away. If you're taking notes, write that down. God does not promise to take away your difficulty. What he promises is to never leave you or forsake you through that difficulty. He promises to take that difficulty in your life, whether it's a health challenge, a money challenge, a marriage problem, whatever it may be, and conform you to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. He does not, at any time, say that asking him will cause a pain to leave your life. If you've suffered through something or a loved one of yours has suffered through something and you're mad at God about it, it's okay. It's okay to question God. But the question shouldn't be, why did you do this? But what was the purpose? You see, many times when struggles hit our life, especially physical problems, our first question is, why God? And instead of falling on your knees and saying, why God, fall on your knees and say, what God? What are you trying to do in my life? Because that's why it's there. He doesn't punish you for the fun of it. He doesn't... Put things in your life to see what you're going to do next. What he does is he puts challenges in your life to mold you. Just like the potter on the wheel takes a lump of clay and as that wheel spins, he places his thumbs and fingers on it and through pressure, through squeezing, through adding water to it, through sometimes starting all over, he forms from it beautiful vases or cups or bowls or plates. And it's all done through the pressure of his hands. God says that he is the potter and we are the clay. And he's applying that pressure in our life. And he chooses to do it in a multitude of ways. How are we to respond? How are we to respond to that pressure? That's what comes up in the section we read in verse 13 of chapter 5. So with that one minute introduction that lasted 12 minutes, let's jump into chapter, or chapter 5 verse 13. He says this. In James' instruction on prayer, which you're going to see from here to the end of the chapter, is all about prayer. His first instruction is this. Thinking about all those things that I said about what he was writing, who he was writing to, and the concerns in our life, he says, is anyone among you suffering? What does the word suffering mean there? It's kind of interesting because the Greek word there for suffering actually means undergoing hardship. Sometimes when I ask, is anybody suffering? You go, no, things, things are pretty good. But if I change it and say, are you having any hardships? Almost everybody in the room would go, yeah. Because I don't know anybody that's got so much money laying around they never have to worry about how a bill's going to pay, be paid. I don't know of anybody who has uh, just gotten so healthy that they don't even go to a doctor anymore. I mean, 
I don't know anybody that life is just so good. They don't even need anything else from God. They tell them to send it to somebody else. We all have suffering and hardships, some more than others. I think in the context of what he's writing, he's looking at this group that's covered in hardships, just completely full to the brim and struggles in their life. And he looks at them and said, does anybody among you have any exceptional hardship? Is there anything out of the ordinary with any of you? Look what he tells them to do. He says, let him pray. Who is to take the action when difficulty comes in your life? It is you. Don't call the pastor and say, look, I got this challenge in my life. Would you pray for me if you're not willing to get on your knees and pray for yourself? God says first and foremost, when a challenge hits your life, cling to him. How do you cling to him? You do it through prayer. Through prayer and the reading of his word. He starts off, he says, is anybody suffering? Let him pray. And I find it interesting, he follows with this statement, is anyone cheerful? Is anyone happy? I look out this morning and think more of you fall in the suffering category than the cheerful category. But what do we do when we're cheerful? Many of us ignore God. I'll be honest with you. I cannot remember the last time I had a person call me and say, Pastor Roger, I need you to do me a favor. I've been praying because God's blessed me so much. I'm just tickled. I'd love for you to pray with me. <laughs> it ain't never happened that I can even think of. You let something happen in your life that's a difficulty, you're going to pick up the phone and call. You let a joyful thing happen in your life, and you just say, okay, that's good. On to the next thing. You completely forget that all good things come from one place. That's our God. The exact same God that hung his son up on a cross for your sins is the exact same God that gave you the automobile to drive here this morning. The exact same God that has the air condition as weak as it may be in the building this morning since sweat is running down my back for us to be able to sit in here without the windows thrown open. The exact same God that gives you the ability together in public to worship without persecution. See, all those things are things to be happy and cheerful about. Yet we come... Worried about the little things in our life, never thanking God for the blessings. I'll be honest with you, as a parent, I am less inclined to give one of my children things over and over again when all I hear is complaints about not having and never getting any thanks for the things they do get. Is that not a true statement of any of you parents? Isn't it difficult when you've given and you've given and you've given without a thank you and they continue to ask and continue to ask and continue to ask? I'm not saying God's like me, but at times... I wonder, I wonder what God thinks about us when we petition for a change in our life, want him to work, and then we never say thank you for anything he ever does. He's saying, if you're cheerful, what are you to do? Sing songs. How many of you guys love to sing? Anybody? Anybody love to sing? Hold your hand up. We're taking notes. How many of you are going to be in the choir? Good. We're starting choir in two weeks. I got about eight or ten more right down that side right there. You say, well, I don't sing good. I didn't see that in the instructions. He said sing psalms too. Sing psalms. Which tells me what? Can you use the hymnal? Absolutely. Can you listen to the contemporary music on the radio or the southern gospel music and sing it? Absolutely. But where should your focus in your music be? On God. There's an entire book in our Bible called Psalms. Why not turn to psalms and sing those? You say, well, there's no notes. You know, just reading the Psalms back to God as a form of singing those to him, to singing, because most of those were at one time put to music. Make up your own. 
Sing along in your car. Make the guy to stop like go, what is he drinking? Because you're having such a good time just singing the songs to God. Just sing along. I find it interesting that that word there for psalms is in the, the actual Greek is, is uh, solo. Solo, I think. Uh, solo is the way it's pronounced. That actual word, if you looked at the root word for it, means to rub or touch. To rub or touch. You know what I think you do when you praise God for the things in your life and sing the psalms to him? I think you touch him. I think there's this certain connection that you get with God by being thankful for that which he has done. So he's saying if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing psalms. But then he goes into one of the most understood passages in the Bible. In verse 14, he says, Is anyone among you sick? If I were to ask for a show of hands this morning, I would say there is a multitude among us that are sick. You notice this morning I couldn't read the particular uh, numbers off of a page. And just so you'll know, I am not dying of anything, as I've had a couple of people call this week and think there was challenges in my life. Uh, Health problems? Absolutely. I've got a right eye that I read out of, in case you didn't know. I read out of this eye and I look at a distance out of this because of surgery. Well, the right eye happens to be covered in a cataract right now, so most of what's up here is a blurry mess at the moment. So if I read something wrong or just excuse me, I'll get the doctor to take care of it sooner or later and we'll be back in the vision business. But he allows me to look through the spots and the wrinkles to see the things he needs me to see and that's all that matters and I'm happy for that but if I were to ask and say hey or is anybody among you sick I can look throughout the crowd and see those that have been through sicknesses recently that have been through struggles have been through problems in their life you know we love to think you know God I'd love for you to heal me of this and that's our first thought and it should be it should be that we petition God for the healing of our bodies I think God loves us and desires that in some cases. But he does not desire that in all cases. He does not desire that your physical body be healed in all cases. Please write that down. Please understand that. Because the bulk of our anger with God through our sickness is the fact we still have the sickness. Look at the greatest human to ever write Scripture. The greatest penman of the New Testament, Paul. Paul prayed that his infirmity be removed. And what did God say? No. He said no. Why? Because it was through that affliction and infirmity in Paul's life that he was made to be the Christ-like man that he was. Some scholars would say it was his eyesight that had gone away. How would you like to know that you were called to pen most of the New Testament, yet you couldn't see to write? See, there was a challenge in his life, and we don't know what it is. Some say it may have been a hip problem. Some say it may have been eyesight. I don't know what it was, but I do know this. When he asked God to remove it three times, God told him no. Why? Because that's what God needed in his life to conform him to be more like Christ. His ultimate destiny of heaven and looking like Christ in his daily walk was more important than his physical body to his heavenly Savior. You see, because if it was all about us, we would be saved and extracted from this miserable world and be sitting in heaven right now, the day that we were saved. It's not about you. It's all about God. If God has to bring a little rain in my life to glorify himself, open the windows of heaven and let it pour. If God has to give me an affliction to make him look good and be known in this world, 
bring the affliction on. Because now that he's given of his life for my miserable, wretched life, he can use my body for anything he desires to glorify himself. It's the least I could do to know that my destiny is no longer hell, but is a place called heaven. If in any day your body becomes more important to you than your spiritual well-being, you need to come to the altar and pray. See, it's in our weakness that God makes us the most strong. It's in our weakness he draws us the closest. And what does he say here? He says, if anyone among you is sick, here's what you're to do. Call the elders of the church. And you may ask, who are those elders? The actual word there used for that is a presbyteros. Presbyteros is the word that is used there, and it really means leaders. It does not point back to what is typically used by us when we look at deacons and, and pastors. It does not use the same word as used in Timothy and when it talks about the pastor of the church or the elders, but it does use the same theme. It's those who are appointed by the church to be in a leadership position. Notice who is to do the calling. Most times when I hear this verse used in a service, it's used because a pastor says, I'd like to call the elders together to lay hands on brother so-and-so because he's sick. Guess what that pastor just did? He rewrote scripture. Because it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that I'm to call the elders together to pray for you. It says you are. It says, if you have a situation in your life that you need the intervention of God in, you are to call for the elders. You want to know why you're sick, feeble, weak, long-suffering? I think the Word tells us many of us are that way because we're not obedient to God. Specifically, what I was referencing was to the Lord's table. But I think it also applies in the fact that we're less than obedient in calling for the elders to come and pray for us. Why? Remember that section he talked about pride? Talked about being humble? You want to be humbled? You pick up the telephone and you call the elders and say, I can't do it on my own. I need you. You want to be humbled before God? You admit that you're not strong enough to make it. That you need somebody to come alongside. We had that happen this week. That's why the message this morning. Because we're going to do just that for one of our brethren. It's the first time I've ever had someone pick up the phone and call me and say, Pastor, I'd really desire for you to get the elders together and pray for me. And at the same breath say, you know, God's going to do whatever he does with this sickness in my body. But I think this sickness is put here to humble me. Because I need to be humbled. The sickness is put here for a spiritual reason. Never once was I asked to anoint him and pray for him for the healing of his body, but I was asked to anoint him and pray for him for the will of God to be done in his life. That's James 5. See, because prayer to God isn't a magic ticket to make your health concerns be all better. It's not what it's there for. Keep in mind God's desires for your spiritual well-being first and foremost. And I find it very interesting that as we came out of last week's message about the power that's in you because of what God's done in calling you to be one of his children, that Holy Spirit that fills you and indwells you and strengthens you, that power, that power is the same power that 
helps that brother that is sick. Is this particular passage talking about sickness as far as the body goes? In one essence, yes. In context of where it's at, it's talking more about the sickness spiritually. Because if you'll notice towards the end, it says that those that have a faithful prayer, those that have a prayer of faith, will be changed somehow. It says even through this prayer by the elders, this prayer of faith, it says you will save the sick. Is it alluding to the fact that the sick are sinful and dying and going to hell and that's why they're sick? No. He's writing again to the Jewish believers. But what he's saying is sometimes this sickness comes in our life and we question God. Our faith becomes less than strong. Ever been there? You ever had a time that you wondered what you really believed because of something going on in your life? You ever had a time that you questioned whether God was even God? You ever had a time in your life you questioned what you read in the Word because of something going on in your life? See, the sickness wasn't the problem. Your faith was. And what he's saying here in 15, he says, If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church, those leaders, those that are ordained in our Baptist church, those that have been called to a leadership position. He says, And let them pray over him. What are they to pray? What are the elders to pray? They are to pray for God's will to be done in their life, the person's life, physically. That God would do as he sees fit with their physical body to glorify himself, first and foremost. Secondly, they are to pray for the person's weakness. Weakness, because the word there for sickness is a word that's Astaneho, astaneho is the word that's used there, and that astaneho in Greek is a word that means to be feeble, sick, or to be made weak. To be put in a context where it's at, the physical struggle in a person's life has made their spiritual faith weak. If you say it's never happened to you, it's because you've never been physically sick. Trust me, when your body goes south, your faith takes a hit. And what he's saying is the men should pray, yes, for the physical healing, but more importantly, for the spiritual healing. The spiritual healing. How do we know that? Because he says he should be anointed, or he should anoint him with oil. In the Bible, anytime you see oil present in an anointing, what is it symbolic of? The Holy Spirit. The feeling of the Holy Spirit. Who is it from last week's message that strengthens you and gives you the power to live the Christian life? The Holy Spirit. What they're saying is pray and symbolically anoint them that they be refreshed, renewed in the spirit, in their spiritual walk. And he says you do all this in the name of the Lord. Why the name of the Lord? Because really you're standing in for Jesus. You are those physical hands and feet and mouth on this earth for our beloved Father and His Son Jesus Christ. And what we're doing is we're coming beside a person who's been weakened both spiritually and physically and recognizes their need for spiritual renewal and physical renewal. We're coming alongside that person and we're praying, God, you do as you see fit with his physical body or her physical body, but you strengthen their faith to such a point that no matter what you do with their physical body, their spirit 
honors and glorifies you. All the way to the day that they're ultimately healed, as we all believers will be, when we're called home to be with Jesus, where there will be no more sickness. There will be no more tears. There will be none of those things we struggle with in our physical body. And until that day, we, God will use those physical things in our life to mold us, to make us, to conform us to be more like His Son, Jesus Christ, until the day He chooses to call you home to be in His presence for eternity. So what are we to do? We're to pray and we're to anoint them with oil. And why? And why are we to do that? It says the prayer of the faithful will save the sick. No, the prayer doesn't save them unto salvation. That is already done. He's writing to believers. It saves them from a weak faith. It saves them from a struggle. Why? There's something special about knowing your brothers and sisters in Christ are standing next to you in a physical struggle, isn't it? Isn't it nice to know there's somebody praying for you? Isn't it nice to know there's someone that's come alongside? And see that prayer of faith, believing God will do what he says that he will do, believing God has said that his ultimate destiny for us is a place called heaven, believing that God has hung his son upon a cross for our sins, those things that we believe in, we hold our faith in, we pray over that person and remind them, even though there's this physical struggle in your body right now, God's still God. Jesus is still your savior and your ultimate destiny is a place called heaven. See, we're to come along and Pray faithfully over them that we may help them and uplift them and support them. And he says, by doing that, the Lord will raise him up. Gives me this picture. This picture in my mind of a man named Lazarus. Lazarus was laid in a grave. Jesus loved Lazarus. The Bible tells us that. He was dear to his heart. They sent for Jesus. They come to get him. And Jesus, in his own heart, said, when the time is right, I will go. He didn't rush to the bedside. He didn't rush to the grave. He showed up in his own timing. And they said, we appreciate you coming, but you're a few days too late. Is Jesus ever too late? God's timing is always perfect. Doesn't always happen in our timing. But it always happens in his. If you remember, Jesus stands before that tomb of Lazarus. And he looks into that tomb. And he says these words. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. And the body that had been dead for some days walked from that grave. He raised him up. God's looking to do that in our lives. To raise us from the dead, ultimately one day, yes, when he calls us home. To heal our physical bodies, yes. I have been in the presence of those who have been healed by the touch of God. Matter of fact, I'm a firm believer that all things that heal your body come from God. Whether it be a doctor, whether it be the medicine they prescribe, whatever it may be. God chooses to use what he sees fit to heal us. That's fine. If he wants me to take medication to heal my body or if he wants to touch me, either way, it makes no difference, God. You do what you want to do. But what he really is concerned about is raising us up in our spiritual walk to placing us back into fellowship with him. And it says that that faithful prayer will do that. He goes on to say, confess your sins one to another. 
join together. Come alongside each other. Be supportive in those things in each other's life that we deal with. Don't be a judge. When a person calls and tells you they have a spiritual struggle, don't judge them. Pray for them. Come alongside in faith. Remind them about who God is. Remind them that he's their God. He's their creator. He's their sustainer. He's their life. This morning we have a unique opportunity as a church, and especially as a group of elders and a pastor, to come alongside a man who has done what James chapter 5 says. This morning we're going to ask him to come down and be with us at the front. We're going to gather around him. We're going to anoint him with oil, and we're going to pray for him. Now, is there anything special about the oil? Outside of the fact Miss Diane made it from scratch uh, for me, and I would tell you what's in it, but again, that eyeball won't let me read it. But she made this for us. Is there anything special about it? Absolutely not, because it's not in the oil. It's in the symbolism of the Holy Spirit's feeling. Is there anything special about the laying on of hands? No, other than to say that we're coming alongside this man to walk with him through whatever the physical trial may be, to pray with him daily, to be a support. And the ordained men of the church are going to do that this morning. You're going to participate as a congregation because it goes on and it says, the end of chapter 5, that we should confess our sins one for another, praying for each other. Does that mean we're going to set up a confessional booth and you're going to start talking to me in a booth? Absolutely not. I would get all depressed and then I would need a psychiatrist probably. But this morning, we're going to confess that God is still God. Christ is still our Savior. And that he loves our brother in Christ and desires for him to both be healed physically and spiritually this morning. So this time, I'm going to ask the ordained men of the church, if there's anyone here that's been ordained in this church or ordained in any other church, in any other Baptist church, if you happen to be a pastor, I'm going to ask you if you would to come join me down front this morning. I'm going to ask Brother Punk, if he would, to come. Let's just line up right over there for me, guys. Punk, would you sit right there for me? I'm going to try my best to share the story very briefly. About our discussion last week. Hope that's still okay, Brother Punk. You know, Punk had some surgery done a few weeks back. And uh, they took out uh, what they weren't sure was cancer or not uh, from his body. He went back last uh, Monday, was it, Brother Punk, last Monday, to see the doctor to find out what the results were. Um, said they had gotten good margins around it when they removed it. But when he got back, they told him it was cancer. It was cancer that was removed. So, obviously... That was not what Brother Punk wanted or what any of us had wanted. We had prayed for something very different, but it was cancer. And there was a couple of courses of action that could be taken, and Brother Punk chose the action that best fitted his need at that particular moment. I talked to Brother Punk on his way home and went back and saw him on Monday, and and, uh, that was when the humbling experience for a pastor took place. Because like I say, it's the first time that I've ever had a person come to me and ask for the elders to pray. I've been part of a service where the pastor said, let's have so-and-so come down and we're going to lay hands and pray. I don't think that's biblical. I think it's biblical when a man humbles himself and says, I need God. I need God in a special way. I need God to heal my body if he so chooses, but I need more importantly for God to heal me spiritually. Because of the struggle, 
folks, says, you know, I need to be humbled. I've needed it all along and hadn't seen it. But something about this pain in my body, this particular cancer that has showed up, has humbled me. And he asked, he said, Pastor, I'd love for you to get the elders together to pray. And it set me on a course of looking again at that scripture. And that's when I realized, you know, as much as God wants our bodies to be perfect, it would do no good to have perfect hands and perfect feet and a perfect heart if I died and went to hell, now would it? None whatsoever. His desire for us is we spend eternity in heaven forever with him. Even if we have to endure a cancer on this earth or something in our body. And Punk said, you know what? God's going to do what he's going to do with my body. He said, I don't, I'm not even concerned about it in all honesty. He says, yes, it bothers me. But I'm not concerned. He says, I've given that to God. That's God's business. God's going to do what God's going to do. He says, I just want to be strong in the Lord through it all. And that's why he asked this morning that we come and we pray for him. And we lay hands on him and pray. So I'm going to ask the guys who have been ordained, if you would, to come and lay hands on Brother Punk. If there's any other ordained men, you're welcome to come join us this morning for this. I'm going to ask all of you to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray in this manner. I'm going to anoint Brother Punk and pray for him. Pray a prayer out loud to God. But you pray in your hearts and your minds to God. If you so choose to pray out loud, you help yourself. You won't interrupt me and my God at all. But you pray that God does what he sees best physically in Punk's life. That if he chooses to reach down and touch his body and heal him, and that will bring him the most glory, do it today. Do it. Do whatever brings you the glory that you deserve, God. That's our physical prayer. But more importantly, our spiritual prayer for Punk is this. That his faith be strong. That he doesn't slip from the fact that he knows God is in control. And God's ultimate destiny for him is a place called heaven. And that one day he'll be in a body that has no sickness. That has no pain. That will never shed a tear. And he'll be in the presence of his Father. Why? Because he placed his trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So this morning as we anoint him and pray, I ask that each of you pray with us. Father, this morning we just come before you broken and humbled. Broken and humbled, Father, that you would give us an opportunity to come alongside this, our brother in Christ, and stand in the gap for him and pray. To pray, Father, first that if it be your will, if it be your desire that you take this cup of sickness from him, Father, and that you heal his body. And that you do it in such a way, Father, that it's evident that it's you. That it's the touch of your almighty hand, the hand that created us, the hand of the great physician, the one that can heal us, Father, if you so choose. We ask that if it be within your will to do that, that you do it. And you do it in such a way, Father, that it's obvious. It's obvious to Brother Punk. It's obvious to this church. But more importantly, it's obvious to this world that you are God and that you chose to do that thing. We ask that, Father, that you may be glorified through it. 
But we know in asking that you also at times choose to use that suffering, that physical inability of our body, Father, to, to mold us and make us. And if that be the case, Father, you give Punk strength to walk through whatever physically he's about to face. We ask that you be with his wife. You ask that you be with his friends. I ask that you be with his church as, as we wait upon you. As we rejoice in the things that you do, whether they be the things we desire or not. As we come to you in prayer each day for him and as we rejoice each day with him in the steps that you have given him in his life. But Father, I also ask this of you. For a man that loves you so much that he's willing to call and say, I need to be humbled. I need to come off of this platform of pride in my life and I need to fall on my face before God. I can't do it on my own. I need my brother's my sisters in Christ, for him to humble himself and ask that. I ask that you open the windows of heaven and you pour out blessings upon his life like he's never seen or even anticipate. Father, I ask that you give him strength in his spirit. Give him strength in his spirit to remember that you are God, to remember that you died upon a cross for his sins, to remember that you formed his body in the womb before he was ever seen, to remember that you know the day and the hour with which you will call him home. That you know every breath he takes, every step he makes, every hair that falls from his head. You know every word he's going to say. You know all that he's done. And you love him anyway. You love him so much that you called him to be one of yours. Remind him daily that even if his physical body fails, his spiritual body will spend eternity in your presence. Remind him, Father, that you love him. You love him when he's whole. You love him when he's less than whole physically. And that you have something in store for him. There's something that you desire to use him for in this world to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That a little physical pain is not going to stop his ultimate destiny and his ultimate glorification of you through the life that he lives here. Remind him that You've chosen a path for him to walk, and you've promised to never leave him or forsake him. That you will be with him through the highs and through the lows. And that most of all, you will place your arm around him and draw him close and love him through the goods and the bads. Father, we ask for more mountaintops and valleys. We ask for the opportunity for him to spend many more years worshiping you and serving you on this earth. And we ask, most importantly, that you let the light of his life, Jesus Christ, shine through him so brightly that others are drawn to know him as their Lord and Savior. This morning, Father, we humbly fall on our faces before you. And we pray that you will work your will, your perfect will, in Brother Punk's life. May you be honored and glorified by both this service this morning and every day ahead in Punk's life. Father, we want to say we love you. We trust you fully, both physically and spiritually. And we pray that we would honor you in all we say and do. This we pray in the name of your precious Son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Love you. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. 
We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.